Welcome to Woodward World. <clears throat> this this is the Martin Woodward Show. No, that's rubbish. It's the Martin Woodward Podcast, and I'm Martin Woodward. Hey, Martin. How's it going? <laughs> hey, Neha. How you doing? Didn't see you there. Come on in. Let's get the show started. This is the Read Me Podcast, a show dedicated to the topics, trends, stories, and culture in and around the community on GitHub. I'm Neha Batra, and I lead GitHub's core productivity team. And I'm Martin Woodward from the GitHub Developer Relations team. Hey, Neha, there's a phrase that Mark Andreessen made famous. Software is eating the world. Have you heard of that? Oh, yeah. I'm from Mills. Well, I've been thinking a bit about this recently. We can put a whole new spin on it. You know, open source is also eating the world. Okay, aggressive. But explain that to me. What do you mean by that? Well, I've just been thinking there's so many ways that what we do, you know, what the GitHub community does. Um, It's not just building websites, building libraries for other developers, whatever. Everything we do impacts everybody's lives on the planet. There's there's nobody that it doesn't touch. Yeah, I mean, if I think about it, I know there's an impact in pharmaceuticals and in farming and in so many things. So in a way, you can say that relying on software is relying on open source. Right. So that's what I was thinking. You know, I thought we could have a look at some of the hidden ways that open source and software in general is changing our lives. And along those lines, I think there are a lot of ways that the less technical, less codey parts of our jobs get overlooked, but they're also super important. So it's a bit of the flip side, right? Devs are influencing everything, but they also depend on solid communication, good writing, and a lot of other skills that make a symbiotic relationship. Yeah, exactly. Which means on the show today, we've um, got... Actually, yeah. Wait, Barton. I've been meaning to tell you, I hate to do this, but I've got to hit the road this month. I've got family travel, conference travel, you know how it is. The good news is I get to do something that I know you love to do too. I'm meeting more devs from the GitHub community. But hey, you're going to do great. I can't wait to listen. So I'm I'm just doing these on my own. Is that the Bye. Plan? Oh, man. Hey, huh? Uh, okay, right. Uh, okay, right. I got this. Well, today on the show, you're in luck because you'll be hearing a whole lot of me, apparently. And that's my favourite topic. But um, don't worry, we've got some other great people for you as well, including Clint Finley on non-code contributions. Veradime's Kyla Middleton will talk to us about healthcare privacy and the cloud. And some bonus wisdom from our recent conversation with Kelsey Hightower. He talked with us about managing the inner workings of Kubernetes, including some of those non-code contributions that are so essential to successful projects. First up, it's First Commit. On your mark, get set. We're riding on the internet, cyberspace... Throughout the show today, we'll be looking at a lot of ways that open source feeds into a lot of things. And the key word here is feed. It isn't hard to think about those massive industrial farms with huge irrigation systems, automated machinery. They're all using open source, right? But what if I told you people were also using this kind of technology in their own garden variety gardens? Enter FarmBot. I love to grow artisanal vegetables. It's a system that offers hardware and software to create your own smart garden in your backyard. It's run 100% on open source. It's not only more eco-friendly than buying all your produce at the grocery store, it lets you customise your garden as you'd like. 
There are motors, cedars, and other handy things to help you grow all the plants you want. Yum. Open source carrots. Plus everything you'd expect for an open source community, like uh, documentation, resources to build plugins, the ability to make contributions to all the open source repositories, all that meaty stuff. Or not so meaty, I guess, vegetably? I don't know. Anyway, it's pretty cool that something like this can bring together technologists and traditionalists. Maybe they can even get together and break bread, or maybe a nice carrot cake or something. But be forewarned, it's all open source. So if your setup doesn't work quite right, or you're not loving how your radishes have turned out, get ready to head to the FarmBot Community Forum for help. As we know from the kind of behind the scenes work that a lot of us do, developers and open source have a hand in all different aspects of life. Many, many that people don't actually realize. It's one of the things I really love about my job actually. It's not just the code part, but the human parts that we have impacts on. Today, we're gonna to talk with Kyla Middleton. She works in cloud security in the healthcare space, an area where privacy and data protection is really fundamentally important. She's an engineer at Veridime in the DevOps space, and we're going to learn about some of the tension she's been navigating in this kind of you know, closed wall system around healthcare and sharing her knowledge still to help others around her. We're also going to be talking about some of the ways that she's been navigating the challenges that come with working in the cloud in the healthcare space, as opposed to working within the network on-premises. So, hey, Kyla, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. So um, first, do you want to tell us a bit more about what you actually do at Veridine? Sure. And that's a great question. You and my manager have been asking me all the time, <laughs> what, what do you do here? I am kind of a freelance DevOps engineer, and I love that. I say freelance because I'm not on the DevOps team. I'm just the specialist that sits over in the corner until I'm needed. When projects have trouble, I come in and help, and help means solve technical challenges that have been uh, befuddling the, the teams, help sort out processes and tooling, and uh, just get things moving again. I find it really a lot of fun, especially when I, I teach everyone to do my job, and then I step away and things don't explode. That's the best feeling. Earlier in the show, we were talking about farming, and you actually worked on a farm back in the day, right? That's before you got into tech? I did. I, I grew up in a very rural Nebraska in the center of the United States. And you don't apply. There's there's no uh, interview. You're just the child of a farmer. And you go to work because you live there. And you if you want to keep eating in my house... And it was just a ton of fun to grow up on a farm in wide open spaces and drive tractors and play with dangerous equipment. But there was no air conditioning. So here at Computers, I am. Well, you know, that's, uh, I live in the middle of uh, rural Northern Ireland, surrounded by farmland uh, with no air conditioning. So I certainly know how that is. How do you think kind of the experience shaped the way you do what you do now? Like, it seems very, very different working in healthcare to working in farming. 
It is interestingly exactly the same. When you're rural, you can't just head over to the Walmart to get something that you desperately need, the right tool for the job that, you know, which would be the, you know, the Splunks or the the Cisco's, the expensive tools that would solve the problem very, very well. You end up with just what you have in your toolbox and you need to repair it there. And in any regulated industry, there are significant rules around the tooling and the procedures and the processes. You can't just go post your code on the internet or post it with ChatGPT and say, hey, please solve this problem because you're in a lockdown environment. And it's very much the same as growing up very rural or trying to solve problems out in the country because you are very limited in the toolbox that you have. I love the open source community's contributions because many of those tools I can use because I can audit the code base. I can use those things. So those open source tools are incredible for getting me started because they were low cost and building really cool stuff these days because I'm able to use them in regulated industries by and large. Yeah, and that's something that I think People who haven't worked in, say, healthcare or maybe some of the legal side as well, you know, people in banks think they have regulation to deal with, but in healthcare, it's a whole different ball game. You know, it's it's a very, very regulated industry for good reasons. When I have a bad day, people can't compile code or people can't push code or something like that. That's a bad day for me. But when you have a bad day, there's like lives and people's privacy on the line. Absolutely. I contracted for a while as a network engineer. That, that was my upbringing in the IT world before I entered DevOps and cloud. And I was talking to one of the doctors on the floor of a hospital I was supporting, and, and he was telling me, well, all the crash cards that revive people from death are Wi-Fi driven. So make sure the Wi-Fi stays up when you do that upgrade, like lives literally depend on it. And that kind of pressure is something I have never forgotten. So what are the biggest challenges you actually see in the healthcare space? Is it around security and locking things down or, you know, what is it? What's what's the most problematic things that you're seeing right now? The answer is yes. Um, <laughs> among many organizations, many, many industries, the problem is you have to be totally secure and you also have to be totally fluid and allow your developers to, you know, innovate and experiment and test. You legally have to remain secure, but in industry and in competition and in free markets, you're required to compete quite strongly by innovating rapidly. So you have to do both. And that's an impossible challenge. It's one that we, we do our best to solve, but it's a very difficult challenge to solve. So how do you actually go about providing those guardrails so that developers and you know teams can innovate but have the safety net so that they can do this in a secure way but also do it in a way that they have psychological safety as well they because nobody wants to leak patient data accidentally you know so how do you go about putting those guardrails in place for teams i think i'll have an unusual answer compared okay. to others i i think most techies, most engineers think in terms of tooling. You need the, the proper IM or RBAC controls. You need to secure your blast radius and your technical tooling needs to be perfectly managed. Newest minus two versions, things like that. But I don't agree. I think it's training. I think it's people. The tools are rarely what leaks your data. You, of course, can be hacked by your public endpoints. But in a cloud environment, which increasingly is 100% of the environments that I work in and, and help secure, 
almost everyone can see almost everything and they can touch almost everything. And you can, you can certainly limit that technically, but I like to go the other direction. I like to train the staff to do a good job. And when they're empowered and confident that the guardrails are in place, the technical ones that let them experiment, they feel less psychological pressure to not touch it. You know, it works. Let's never touch it again. And when they feel safe, psychologically safe that the guardrails are there, they experiment, they build cool stuff. And I usually don't say stuff. I usually have to be bleeped on my conference calls, but I just like people to build cool things and they can only do that when they feel safe. So that's incredibly important. Yeah, definitely. A buddy of mine called Donovan Brown used to say that DevOps was bringing the union of people, process and products to uh, deliver continuous value to our customers. And he deliberately put it in that order, people, process and then technology kind of thing, because people's always the hardest part. And that's the slowest moving, the longest moving part kind of thing. And then the processes should be there to support your people, not the other way around. (laughs) And then finally, the technology just underpins those processes and like automates them and simplifies them. But unless the people are there and unless they're up to speed, then they can't do all that cool stuff that you keep that you mentioned. So, yeah. But you mentioned cloud, like, I mean, and you're an AWS builder as well. So Cloud and and healthcare, that's kind of, healthcare were some of the sort of slowest people to move to cloud because of all that regulation and because of all the, the challenges that exist in moving to sort of a cloud way of working. So um, what challenges and opportunities do you think you should flag for people who are, you know, their companies kind of still getting into cloud or getting better at doing cloud software in different environments? That's the question. That's the driving question of maybe the past decade is as cloud has matured, is it worth it to use it yet? Is it still too scary and insecure for us to move our our critical stuff to it? I have a consultancy and I talk to uh, manufacturing, I talk to business that have trade secrets that, that might be sought after by other countries, by other businesses. And they're like, you know, I've read cloud is insecure because those are what's in the news that, you know, mm. S3 buckets are again leaking data. Someone misconfigured a firewall and it's letting everything in. But that draw, that that gravitational draw towards using this empowering tool set, which cloud is absolutely incredible in terms of empowering. I don't know if it'll save you money. I know that's advertised as the pitch. It'll save you cost and help you. I think it's more expensive, but it will empower the heck out of your developers to move fast and provision resources, provision configurations just incredibly quickly. And that draw in terms of being competitive in an open market is huge. It, it can't be overstated because it is everything. So there's been a ton of pressure on cloud providers to please secure your things, use secure defaults. I understand it lets people move faster to turn off security, but really we need it. And even, even governments these days, like there's a gov cloud for AWS, like are coming mm. around. Even military secrets are now like being put in clouds, into public clouds. So I think we're there. I, I think we are. It's, it takes some special training. It takes some understanding of maybe the weak points. S3 buckets have always been just overly complicated and leaking data sometimes. So you just have to know how to secure those. Anything that touches the internet should be carefully considered and architected. But things that are internal and don't touch the internet, you can feel free to experiment and build and break anything you need. Now, we're seeing more and more kind of, you know, open come into the healthcare space and into the networking side as well. You know, you spend a lot of your time working on closed source kind of, you know, tooling and things for people. But, 
yet you're still able, I see you online all the time, you're still able to kind of share tools and share your knowledge with the community. How should people who are maybe in a more regulated industry, like, have you got any tips on how they can still engage with the open source community and with the developer community at large, even though they maybe their day jobs is maybe fairly closed and locked down sort of thing? It's a cultural challenge as much as it's a technical challenge. When I first started publishing blogs, I, I got that call from legal that you don't want to get that said, hey, you're leaking our IP. You're lur- this is our technology. We paid you a lot of money to build this. What are you doing? And I, I came up in the open source world, so I don't think about it as, as technology that's owned. These architectures and tool configurations and tools that I write, I think of as something that you should give back. I wouldn't be here without all the stuff that people published before me. So I want to help the people that come after me. So having that conversation with legal that took many meetings and encouraging them to see that I can publish tools without compromising our security was incredibly important and took a long time because legal is is necessarily very conservative in terms mm-hmm. of risk. But eventually I got there. And that's just something that someone will need to fight within your your own organization, that cultural fight with, with legal and, and risk and compliance that you're not going to compromise your environment. And then technically, what can you rip out? How can you rip it out and publish parts of your environment without saying, you know, we use this configuration that has this weakness. Yeah, go for it. I'm at this company. Come find me on the internet. That kind of stuff is a technical challenge too. And I would encourage folks to start those conversations with legal if you want to ask permission and not forgiveness and start working with someone who's done this before. What guidelines do they have for what should you publish? What should you not publish? Because once it's on the internet, you can't get it back. It it does not come back. So you need to be quite careful with passwords, with SSH keys, with secrets that might be related to your environment. Well, and I guess that's one of the ways in which kind of, you know, public clouds, but also open source helps because, you know, by ripping out the proprietary stuff and focusing it on the public cloud, you know, endpoints you're using or, you know, the the Terraform kind of scripts you're using to actually do, you know, do deployments of things, it kind of makes it more reusable to people anyway and uh, more applicable to their day to day. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I, I'm a HashiCorp ambassador. I'm huge at Terraform. I, I love it. It's the best thing in the world. I love to just go read the Terraform documentation and learn how services work. I, I find it's a great way to get a running start on what is this tool called DynamoDB? Let's go look at all the resources that I can build and all the levers you can pull because it will tell you all of these settings can be customized. These three are required. These 10 are optional. That's what these do in one or two sentences. And versus reading white papers on how these things work, it's just absolutely incredible how quickly you can come up to speed. And copy what other people have done. When you start first start out in tech, you think, oh, when I'm a real programmer, I'll write everything novel. Everything will be bespoke and all. It'll come out of my... I copy stuff from Stack Exchange about 40 times a day, and I mm. guarantee you all your seniors do too. So go and copy code. Go and try to understand what people are doing. And now that we have tools like Terraform, you can copy infrastructure configurations too and plop them down in your environments for testing. Yeah, I find this a lot of times, you know... Oftentimes when people are using GitHub inside organizations, they're trying to bring that culture of sharing more inside of their company. It's very, very common. So we have enough kind of inner source conversations. And Terraform Scripts is a great example to me of, 
you know, like, why shouldn't we share these inside the organization at least? Because ideally, if it's correct, if everything's correctly written and I'm using, say, Vault, another product from HashiCorp, you know, like, um, if it's published inside the organization, I gain no access that I couldn't already get inside the company on learning how that system's architected and, you know, being able to break into it. So why shouldn't I share these scripts around my organization? Because it means I can go look at another team, see how they have configured something, how they're deploying something, and learn from them. And then that way, when I go have that meeting with them to go ask them questions like the questions I can ask can be so much smarter and so much more informed based on sharing and I guess the same is true publicly as well it's you know sharing these you know scripts and sharing different patterns and ways of doing things is you know less about exposing secrets and more about just sharing knowledge and and, and giving people inspiration to learn from is it? Absolutely. I was part of the cloud platform team at uh, Viridon for a couple of years, and I see these cloud platform teams popping up. And it's kind of like DevOps. It's it's defined a little differently everywhere you look. But I think one of their primary jobs is cross-pollination. De-silo those skill sets, de-silo those codes and modules for Terraform because you can empower everybody else in the company. If you solve a problem, let people know that you solved it and share that code. Something that I recommend is is an anti-pattern for a lot of companies, which is putting all the Terraform for every vertical, every different team within our organization in the same repository. And then when pull requests come in for any team, everybody gets them. And that's an annoying amount of emails, but also you get to see what are the other teams working on? What are the modules that they're using? What are the patterns and configurations, the discussions that they're having? How are they building things? And then the whole point of that is let people copy. And I say it's an anti-pattern. It's not very dry. It's not very blast radius proof. But it sure as heck will get your network engineers and your database folks to start seeing what Terraform is and what it can do. If it can build 50 servers in two minutes, well, surely it can configure a database too. It can build your VPCs and VNets and stuff like that. And those teams have been pretty reticent to adopt cloud. Like databases are so sensitive, it's scary to touch them with automation. What if it does something I don't like? So getting them comfortable and secure with the tooling, seeing what other teams have done is huge. That's a great way to uplift and teach. Now we're seeing like kind of a massive rise in you know, people doing network engineering, some of the more like the GitOps movement as well, to a certain extent, coming into open source and sharing their stuff in the open a lot more now. Any last bits of advice kind of for somebody like you that's come from kind of more of a networking space, getting into DevOps, getting into the cloud, like where should people start and what should people, what should people go do? You must get asked this question all the time at conferences and things. I do because I think it's an uncommon background Uh to have. I I think mostly DevOps is developers that are far smarter than me at at Java and and Python and stuff like that, like writing code. And then systems engineers. I, I don't see a lot of database or network folks like come into DevOps. And really, it's the same thing. Focus on the basics. Everything still has an IP. There's still the concept of firewalls. They look a little different on a web page versus an SSH to a Cisco router, but you're still filtering based on your tuple, your source, dest, and port, or a layer seven firewall that's filtering based on URLs, and you're still routing. There's still BGP. A lot of that stuff is still relevant. So don't feel like, 
oh, it's the cloud, it's it's a totally magical space. Those vendors will pitch you that it, their tool is magic and you don't have to know what an IP is anymore. You still do. You absolutely do. Routing is still incredibly relevant. DNS is still relevant. Any of that fundamental knowledge, it's just a remix in cloud. It's been shuffled about, it has new names, but it's the exact same concepts you've come up with. So focus on the basics and you can go as far as you want to go. Well, hey, Kyla Middleton, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. And thank you for being on the Remy Project. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Instead of a usual Ask RMP this month, we're getting advice from an authority in this space, Kelsey Hightower. We spoke to him last month in a wide-ranging conversation, but we specifically wanted to ask him about what it's like working on Kubernetes for so many years. What keeps that scale going in one of the most active GitHub communities? Here's his advice on managing communities at this scale and what he learned that can apply to a project of any size. When you get a project at the scale of Kubernetes, and there's a couple of levels of scale. One is like technical implementation. Can it scale to from... 100 nodes to 10,000 nodes. And there's the other scale of what happens when competitors all rely on the same technology. Now you need legal help. You need trademark help. You need to discuss what happens with patents, what happens with source code. You have to think about bad actors at the government level, people who have unlimited resources to put back doors into software. And that stuff is expensive to audit at the depths. And so I think a lot of people don't understand that that's beyond what a solo maintainer or even a handful of maintainers are capable of doing, right? These audits are tens of thousands of dollars and different countries want different audits at different times. And so a lot of times I do think we have a love-hate relationship with foundations like the Apache Software Foundation or the CNCF. But when you think about it from a scale perspective, the community isn't only technical practitioners. The community now becomes lawyers and CFOs that are about to bet a huge part of their company on an open source project that if anything bad happens, you could actually bankrupt one of these organizations through something like this. So you end up having a lot more people join your community with different levels of concern. So you have to have ability to think about the legal aspects, the financial aspects. Who pays for the testing infrastructure when the build is measured in millions, right? That is something that a lot of people don't think about, but it needs to be accounted for. And I think on the community side, I think the Linux community did a really good job. You know, they had that concept of plumbers. They have a lot of documentation for new users and, you know, a way a pair program together to gain your skills because it's a very complex project. There are parts of Kubernetes that are very complex that probably less than 50 people in the world can work on. That's a very bad spot to be in. So you got to make sure that you don't lose anyone interested in working in those areas. So maintainers now become people who need to really spend a lot of time mentoring other people in their domain area of expertise. And let's not forget those beautiful community managers. Those are the people who say thank you when no one else is looking. Those are people that are paying attention to the contributor graphs and noticing that there's not enough diversity in that graph. Those are people realizing that there does need to be a code of conduct because there is some bad behavior that's pushing away the very limited supply of people who can work in those corners of that project. 
And so all of these people end up creating what we call community. And so there's a lot of detail that goes into it, a lot of nuance. And we need equally talented people in all of those areas as we have people writing the course software that goes into the project. So you got to think holistically about this thing. If you missed our full interview with Kelsey Hightower during Maintainer Month, head to github.com slash readme, or you can find it in our feed wherever you listen to podcasts. It's episode number 30. When you dive into the project, if you're like me, you get all jazzed on the code. Uh, you want to see what people have done. You want to learn. You want to figure out how you can you know, add your own spin or help the project be a little bit better. But we also know that all the other stuff outside of the code is hugely important as well. I once worked on a project called uh, the Worldwide Telescope, which is this open source thing which powers a lot of like the planetariums that are used around the world. And if you've seen some of the diagrams and space fly-throughs that you see on the news and science programs, that was actually done with this Worldwide Telescope open source application. And while the code and you know the client server sort of stuff was really important to making that work, actually most of the value in that particular open source project project came from people contributing non-code value to the community. So whether it's data, whether it's documentation, whether it's videos, sort of showing people how to use this amazing sort of worldwide telescope project. We're actually going to talk about non-code contributions, things like documentation, education, support, you know, and community building as well. To talk more about this, we have the Readme Project senior editor, Clint Finley, back in the mix. Hey, Clint, it's good to have you back. Always good to be here, Martin. So why do you think people sometimes forget how important these non-code contributions are? Why do many of us, you know, guiltily just jump straight into the code? Yeah, well, I, I think it's understandable. And, and we do the same thing with commercial software, right? We, we think about software companies largely as, you know, the agglomerations of developers rather than these things that have all these other people involved, marketers, graphic designers, and technical writers and so forth. But in just the same way that a successful software company is going to have all these components, a successful open source project will have many of the same things. If you just throw your code out there and no one knows that it exists or no one knows how to use it or what to use it for, the project's not really going to go anywhere. So these sorts of non-code contributions, especially you know documentation and just you know filling out a README file, just are the you know the, the keys to making something grow. And then as a project grows, you need to have you know community managers there to make sure the community doesn't turn toxic and you know just keep people on topic and and uh, keep a healthy community going. Yeah, I've actually talked to a number of. Um, open source maintainers and they start off contributing the code and then with the community they actually get help with triage of bugs and things like that so they can stay focused on the code did you have a chance to speak to some maintainers about this yeah so i, I talked to sarah rainsberger who's actually a, a core contributor to astro the uh, web ui framework but even though she's a core contributor, her main contributions are actually in the area of support and community. Uh, here's what she had to say about it. I've heard people sometimes speak dismissively of PRs that fix a typo or fix a broken link. And 
Yes, they are not code contributions, but if you, as a as an open source maintainer, as a project maintainer, if you care about your project being used by other people, then imagining the position of your user as they're trying to navigate your readme or your documentation and the friction it causes when a typo is distracting or a broken link is frustrating. There are so many ways to contribute to the overall experience of the people using your project that don't involve code. It involves making them enjoy using your project, your product. I run into open source projects all the time where the documentation is you know, less than stellar, really. Why do you think that is, Clint? What's happening there? What's going wrong? Yeah, well, I think documentation is the thing that I hear the most when I talk to maintainers in terms of what they would like to, to see more of from the community. And this may sound self-serving coming from a writer, but writing is hard. And uh, you know, frankly, a lot of developers don't want to do it. They didn't get into programming because they wanted to write documentation. They got into it because they want to write code. They want to solve mm -hmm. problems. They want to you know, manifest their thinking onto the screen, which is, of course, also a lot of hard work. It's something they they often just really want help with, and you know it's 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 also really beneficial to have that outside point of view for writing documentation, because when you've written the code, you know how it works. You can forget some of the things that other people aren't going to know walking into it, and it's also just a really good place to start in open source. You need to uh, understand a project before you can really jump in and start uh, contributing code or or doing other things. So if you if you start by just reading the documentation, finding the things that are unclear, the things that need to be updated, you can start by fixing those things and contributing in that way before you jump in and try to do something else. Well, Astro's a web framework, and Sarah's obviously very technical. I mean, she leads Astro's docs work as a core maintainer. She builds her own websites with Astro. So you're seeing that people who are coders and have these technical skills they're still helping projects in ways that aren't through code? Right, yeah. So there are you know, some non-technical ways that you can contribute to open source, uh, say community management or graphic design. But a lot of things that are not code are still very technical. So release mm -hmm. management is an interesting one to me because it's, it's not something I you know, often think about in terms of ways to contribute to open source. But as a project grows, that's definitely a task or a role that someone has to take on. And, you know, it's, it's just a good example of where there's a need for very technical people to help out in ways that uh, don't involve necessarily writing much code or any code. Support is another area. You know, it's, it's very technical. You need to understand the project. You need to understand how people are using it. In a lot of cases, you probably do need to understand the, even the underlying code. That's, you know, another really good place to get get started with open source because, you can get started right away just by answering people's questions with you know no pull request required. Here's what Sarah had to say about her work doing support. I think of myself as being very close to what our users are doing. They are not trying to learn how to build a website platform or framework. They are trying to build a website. Are the docs written in such a way that when you type something in search, you are getting useful results? That's not a code contribution, but that absolutely is essential to people who are trying to code with our project. 
And of course, non-code contributions aren't just for beginners. You really need to understand a project before you can make code contributions. So spending that time on documentation and support is a great way to get acquainted with the code base and with the community before you dive in and start making changes. And it's a good way to sharpen your writing and communication skills, which are important for any job. And beyond that, developers who engage with support will learn a lot more about how users are using a project and start to understand where they're coming from, what the applications are, so they can actually write better code for the particular project. The non-code side is also just a good way to stay active in an open source community and, and sort of build a name for yourself. People are more likely to remember you if you stick around and respond to issues than they are if you just fix a few bugs and then never participate again. And as you said, Sarah is very technical, but she also makes the point that not only can coders contribute to non-code aspects of a project, but that getting started contributing to open source can be challenging even for experienced developers. It can be quite overwhelming for people, whether or not you have a code background. People sometimes think that... uh, you know, newbies to open source mean newbies to code. But that's not the case. There are some really experienced devs who need help being walked through the process of actually submitting a pull request and what that looks like, how to commit a suggestion that they receive. That's fascinating to hear. And I'm sure plenty of projects would love people to kind of help out in these areas. How do you actually go about attracting these types of contributions into your community in the first place? Yeah, so I think one of the big ways is just letting people know the work that there is to be done. Lots of people want to contribute to open source and they don't know where to start. So marking some of these non-code related issues with help wanted or good first issue is just a great place to start. And uh, here's what Sarah had to say about cultivating non-code contributors. Astro, from the very beginning, from the top down, valued our community and our docs. Not all open source projects have a docs lead, but by showing from the top what is valued in the community, and and I am one of the one of the big peeps in the community, yet I'm just the docs lead. That shows what the project values and that shows that your contribution will be will be valued because there's someone there that you can see in in an upper position who's being supported. We at Astro also happen to have a very tight docs and dev integration. So in short, one thing you can do is just value from the beginning things that aren't code. Value people who are in your organization doing things that aren't code. One of the other things we do is whenever anyone makes a first PR to the docs repo, we have a standard emoji template. We have this first time contributor alert. We welcome a person in our discord with a personalized message. Uh, They get a pun based on the title of their PR and, and they are mentioned and it goes out in our docs channel and the entire community sees it. So Astro's pretty good at recognizing and rewarding their community and making everybody feel good. We go a little bit over the top in docs. And so it's fun for someone to contribute to our docs, which is not necessarily code. You know, fix a typo, doesn't matter. You get the same red carpet treatment 
rolled out to you. All right. Well, thanks, Sarah. And thanks, Clint. Um, speaking of documentation, I actually am meaning to use Astro to go and uh, rebuild my blog. So this has been quite inspirational for me. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Before we wrap up, Clint, what else is coming up on the README project? Well, Aaron Francis is back this month with a guide encouraging you to finish your projects. We also have a guide from Faras DJ with some actionable advice on mitigating open source supply chain attacks and proactively addressing dependency security. And Shanae Levin's guide explores a concept called code visibility as a solution to the familiar problem of maintaining aging code bases. As always, you can find all of these articles and more at the README project at github.com slash readme. That's it for this episode of the Read Me Podcast. Thanks so much to this month's guests, Kyla Middleton, Kelsey Hightower, Clint Finley, Sarah Rainsberger, and Neha Batcher before she so unceremoniously left me. And thanks to you for listening. Join us each month for a new episode. And if you're a fan of a show, you can find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to subscribe, rate and review, or drop us a note at thereadmeproject at github.com. You can also learn more about all that we do at GitHub by heading to github.com slash readme. GitHub's The Readme podcast is hosted by Neha Batra and Martin Woodward. Stories for this episode were reported by senior editors Clint Finley and Mike Melanson. Audio production and editing by Reasonable Volume. Original theme music composed by Xander Singh. Executive producers for the Readme Project and the Readme Podcast are Rob Mapp, Melissa Beiser, and Virginia Bryant. Our staff includes Stephanie Moorhead, Kevin Sundstrom, and Grace Beatty. Please visit github.com slash readme for more community-driven articles and stories. Join us again next month, and let's build from here. Hey, Neha, you're never going to guess what actually happened today. Neha? Are you seriously gone?